Hello and welcome to AdTalk. I'm your host, George Tarnopolsky of GT Programmatic Consulting. This is our inaugural episode and there's lots to discuss today. First, is it possible for ad tech companies to operate both buy-side and sell-side businesses? Two, why have so many companies tried and failed at buy-side? And three, can the trade desk dethrone Google as the dominant buy-side platform? We're gonna dig into the trade desk's earnings and their annual report. So stay put, lots of interesting things to discuss. First as a springboard, there was an ad exchanger article a few days ago titled, at AppNexus, buy side falls by the wayside. Talking about how AppNexus is uh, divesting in their buy side offerings, which of course prompted a response from AppNexus saying that no, we're investing very heavily in our DSP product. I think the point of the article, though, was that it's symptomatic in our space that companies are finding it more and more challenging to do both buy side and sell side, and they're starting to focus more on one side of the industry. As an example, Rubicon divested in their buyer cloud, and they spoke rather unfavorably about their Chango acquisition. Tremor recently unloaded their DSP offering. Amobi, on the other hand, sold their sell side business. And standing on the other side is the trade desk, who we're going to take a look at later in our podcast, who have uh, had incredible success. And I believe it's been by virtue of having laser focus on the buy side and specifically on the agency. So again, is it possible to do both, buy side and sell side? Obviously, Google has been operating both and they've been doing it very well. My thesis is that it's it's impossible to compete with them. You're going to go for breadth versus depth. Just to look at it from a numbers perspective, starting with their double-click acquisition, they spent $5 billion and counting. They spent $3.1 billion on double-click. That deal closed March of 2008. Then they bought AdMob for $750 million. They bought Invite Media in 2010 for $81 million, which of course became DBM. And that was uh, really the best purchase price of all the companies that they bought in their ad tech. And in 2011, they bought AdMeld for $400 million to supplement the yield capabilities of DFP. So, uh, so Google has continued to build their own LumaScape, and they're able to spend a ton of money and able to go for breadth because of how deep their pockets are. Now, they haven't always been a generalist either. Again, it's obvious that they started in search. Not only that, but uh, they were averse to running ads on their owned and operated properties. And it was really Eric Schmidt that convinced them that, hey, you can monetize this great search engine they've created. The breadth really came later because of the ability that the search business afforded them. In addition, why it's so hard to compete with Google as far as breadth is their engineering muscle. As an example, I personally saw a product within the DoubleClick stack stagnate about 10 years ago when I was at Google. Uh, the DoubleClick search product, which came to DoubleClick and Google by way of the Performix acquisition, uh, was stagnating for a few years, hadn't evolved for a few years, and the executive decision was made to rebuild it from Mountain View and rebuild the product, not just with the best engineers in ad tech, but the best engineers in all of tech. It's extremely hard to compete with Google, both from financial perspective as well as with their engineering muscle. So my, my thesis is that being a specialist is better, lest you go for, for breadth 
and then you uh, you get outcompeted by Google and other big companies in the space. Moving on, why have so many companies tried and failed at the buy side? First, we see a huge fragmentation on the buy side. There's probably close to 100 DSPs out there. And the question is, why has it been so appealing for companies to get into that market? And B, why has it been so challenging? So uh, my theory is that the reason companies go after the buy side is because it's attractive to get close to the marketer. When you're on the buy side, you're closer not just to the agencies, but also to the brands. And also spend has very much of a head and torso effect in the buy side, where it's really centralized among the big six agency holding companies. So it makes it sort of tangible for Salesforce to go out there and procure new business versus perhaps a long tail of publishers. In addition, something that's really important, I believe, to a company like AppNexus is how buyers play from a positioning perspective. I think it's more attractive to someone like AppNexus or to another company that say that their primary buyers are WPP, Publicis, AT&T, Wayfair, Anheuser-Busch versus a long tail of publishers or even worse, ad networks. I think from a positioning perspective, Wall Street may perceive that with a, a little bit of a negative bias. So uh, catering to the buy side has a positioning benefit as well. So why has it been so challenging? You know, we've seen distressed companies on the buy side and, and we've seen companies having trouble becoming successful. So I think there's a few factors there. One, of course, is competition from the big companies that are investing very heavily, including the trade desk, which we will talk to momentarily. But I think also what's really important is uh, the point about margin pressure. Historically, if you went back, I would say seven or eight years ago, if you go back to when the Invite Media guys, as well as my team, were out in the market selling Invite Media products, the rate card was much higher. You could make much higher margin based on media fees. Today, the agencies are pushing media fees down into the single percentage point area. So it becomes extremely hard to sustain a profitable business unless you're running a billion dollars to the platform or are smart about your upsells as well as your initiatives of scale. In addition, something that's not very frequently covered is the fact that operating a buying platform, operating a, a DSP requires a lot of cash flow. It requires a credit facility and it creates for a very stressful business. This is uh, what in finance terms, it's called DSO and DPO, days sales outstanding and days payable outstanding. What that is, in plain terms, it's the difference between the time you have to pay the ad exchanges or they will turn you off and the, the dates you're actually receiving payment from your customers. There's always a delta there and you always have to float a credit line before you get paid by your clients. So it's really expensive to run this business and very challenging from a margin perspective. Moving on, uh, we, we talked about why it's challenging to do this, but there's a company, obviously, that's been extremely successful. It's the Trade Desk. Can they dethrone Google as the dominant buy-side platform? And let's dig into the Trade Desk's earnings and annual report, and let's try to hone in on why they've been so successful. I think first we should analyze the weaknesses of the buy-side products of Google. In general, uh, the sentiment, even internally at Google, is that their product evolution can move rather slowly and make 
safe decisions. As an example, from a competitive perspective, Facebook was first to launch a CRM matching product with their custom audiences product. Google obviously had the ability to do this, but they let Facebook take the first mover advantage because they were afraid of how it would play in the market, how it would be positioned with the governmental bodies, uh, with industry press, etc., etc. And the same applies to their uh, DSP. So, for example, a lot of things around how Google handles location data is very limited which puts them at a disadvantage versus companies that handle location data, target location data with a lot more transparency and a lot more breadth. In addition, Google is, has historically been secretive about their device graph. And there is currently no ability to get linkages of device IDs and cookies out of Google, all tied to a single universal ID. And that is another key gap that independent providers are able to outcompete uh, over Google in, in the current marketplace. So I think some of these reasons have really played into the trade desk's hand. That doesn't take away from their phenomenal earnings. Uh, first, I'm holding in my hand their annual report that came out a few weeks ago, I believe. And uh, in their annual report, which looked at a full 2016, First, they talk about a revenue of uh, 435K per employee. So close to 500K per employee in revenue. You might ask, do they qualify media spend as revenue? They do not. They look at it in the strictest financial terms. They're looking at net revenue. They had a billion dollars in gross spend running through the platform in 2016. And uh, that backs out to 202.9 million in revenue. So uh, you can see that they're operating at about a 20.3% margin off of their growth spend. In addition, they grew 78% year over year, 2015 to 2016, versus an industry average of 27%, which is incredibly impressive, especially at a time when a lot of independent providers actually contracted year over year, 2015 to 2016. And uh, they reported net income in 2016 of uh, 20.5 million and an EBITDA of 65.2 million. To take a step back and uh, kind of set the table on what I think about the trade desk, they've always been a little bit of a mystery to me. I didn't have any connections at the trade desk, which was a little bit unusual. And I think one of the reasons that was the case was because they didn't employ a lot of staff, which becomes apparent now. In addition, I saw them always operate with utmost integrity. And I personally saw them turn away a really large piece of business because they didn't think it was going to be self-service enough. And again, I saw that firsthand and I saw them turn away a huge piece of business. I think even their name is, is, is in a sense, a little bit unusual in our industry. Their name was very specific from a functional and operational perspective to their purpose and mission. Going back to their earnings, they reported having 566 clients in 2016. And those are what they call qualified clients, clients under MSA and spending more than 20000 a year. 566 active accounts or active seats. Also, what's key is that they reported a client retention of 95% year over year, with 2015 clients growing by 71%. Again, 
extremely impressive numbers at a time when the independence contracted year over year. On the product side, they cite having 55 inventory sources. They cite having 400 billion inventory avails per day. I believe that's a typo. The number seems too high. Uh, one of my listeners, if you f- feel like I'm mistaken, let me know. Uh, I thought 400 billion inventory avails per day is too high. Probably meant by a week, but uh, you let me know otherwise. Then they talk about data. They actually say that the data platform was the first thing they built. And today it includes 105 data sources as well as their proprietary data segments. Data really holds the key to their profitability. One of the things that I find so extremely impressive about their annual report is again, those two key numbers, 1 billion in gross spend in 2016 and 200 million in revenue. So in other words, they're operating at a 20% margin, really at a time when rate cards have been pushed into the single percentage points. So it's clear that the trade desk has been really, really smart about their upsells and uh, additional products that they're able to sell to clients. It's really no uh, surprise in the buy side what those high margin products are. It must be data, it must be ad serving and extra products like data feeds and analytics, extra offerings like cross device and lookalike, and extra media packages like PMP bundles. And again, they have clearly been extremely smart in selling in these extra solutions and high margin products to their customers that have mitigated the margin pressure that a lot of independents are feeling in the buying space. Let's also take a look at TradeDesk's latest quarterly report. They announced earnings on Thursday, August 10th, and again, blew past estimates on their second quarter earnings. They reported that their earnings rose 136% year over year, and uh, they also raised full year guidance from 291 million to 303 million. So they continue to be wildly profitable. I believe they really showcase the power of laser focused on a specific sector and evolving quickly and having a sense of mission and charismatic leadership. It's quite possible to dethrone Google as the dominant buying platform. I will go further to say that from a revenue perspective, they still might be more flowing through DBM, but there's a sense in our industry that the trade desk is winning. So something that's gonna be very interesting to watch in the next months and years to come. So with that, let's close out today's podcast. Visit gtconsult.us, send us a note, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Take care.